Our son Philip's getting married in just five weeks to Kara Strand. The story of their acquaintance having been arranged by his mother is quite charming. You might want to ask her about that. In preparation for their honeymoon, Philip needed to get a passport. So he completed the application, and after including the necessary supporting documentation of a certified birth record and a picture, he sent it in. Several weeks later, his application was denied with the following explanation. Your birth certificate was recorded more than one year after your birth occurred, and the evidence used to create the delayed birth record is not sufficient. It was certified from the public health department. So after resubmitting a signed Department of State affidavit where I swore that he was indeed our son, born in the United States, uh, a birth certificate of his three siblings, and a baptism certificate, sent it all in, waited another three weeks, only received yet another rejection, which cited that the evidence was, quote, still insufficient to support your date and place of birth in the United States, despite being assured on the telephone from the State Department that such documentation would suffice. So now we're getting a little nervous. How do we prove that our son is a genuine U.S. citizen? Well, at which end, I supplied the last vestiges of proof that we owned that he was indeed our son born in the United States in the date and place and time shown on his certified birth record, which included a copy of our marriage license that proved that we were indeed married, his kindergarten grade reports that proved that he actually attended school, a real estate tax bill uh, for our home to prove that we were uh, residents of the United States, a loan application for the new home that we were purchasing that indicated at the time of the application we had three children, ages six, four, and two and a half, which would have been him. An excerpt from a family genealogy that, uh, of the D.A. Hare family that proved we actually had four children with their date of birth, and, as God would have it, a copy of a 1985 church photo directory with a family picture taken when Philip sitting on my wife's lap, was six months old. Mailed it all in and waited, anxiously. Just several weeks ago now, he received his passport. This is mine, but this is what he got in the mail. No explanation, no apology. (laughs) I guess the evidence was finally sufficient that uh, to prove that he was indeed a U.S. citizen born on U.S. soil. And thank God now they can go on their honeymoon. <laughs> well, this morning we're continuing a series of sermons on the New Testament book of First John that we've titled Finding Real Life in God's Great Story. And in today's message on the second chapter, we're going to discover what constitutes sufficient proof that we are citizens of God's kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we just thank you for the beauty and the power of a brand new day, for life and light, health, strength of mind and body that enable us to gather here and the freedoms we enjoyed and that we celebrated this week. We pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. May your kingdom come right here on the earth, even as it's done in heaven. Lord, you know our needs of experiencing your kingdom, more than we are in touch with ourselves. And so I pray that you'd bring your kingdom to all of us, our families, our kids right next door in Vineyard Kids. Lord, that 
we could grow to be more like you than when we came. Put power on your word to our lives so that we can walk in the light. It's our prayer in your name. Amen. Numbers of us were raised in religious traditions where we sang hymns. Hymns generally tell a story. They move in linear fashion from one idea to another. And there's something satisfying about that because we all like stories. I also believe that many of us like hymns because of the nostalgia that surrounds them. They hearken back to a time and a place or an era or a season in life uh, that we can recall with fondness. But in numbers of other traditions, beginning with the praise choruses of the charismatic movement, continuing into the um, modern worship of the vineyards, soul survivor, Matt Redmond, Chris Tomlin, Hillsong, Jesus culture era, repetition is a part of worship. Repetition, both in the structure of the song itself, as well as in the singing of the song, can facilitate the Holy Spirit deeply touching our lives and uh, as we connect with God in intimate expressions. Now, if you've spent any time studying the New Testament writings of the Apostle Paul, and then you move to the writings of the Apostle John, the effect might be a bit like moving suddenly from narrative hymns to repetitive contemporary worship choruses. Some might be tempted to be a bit frustrated. Uh, we, we think John should just like get on with it, write what he means, and then move on to the next point and be done. Linear, uh, argumentative structure to, to the arguments. Uh, but, but John's style is not like that at all. Uh, his letter is contemplative and repetitive. And he says the same thing in different ways over and over and over again. We see uh, that in this particular letter, 1 John, he keeps coming back to the same three powerful themes over and over. If you've read it in its entirety at all and are now engaged in the second week of reading it, you've no doubt seen this phenomena. John is saying three things. First, love is the most important thing. God is love, and we should learn to love one another. Secondly, he's saying right belief, right orthodoxy, and right behavior, right orthopraxy, are both necessary. You got to believe and behave. You got to say and do. And then thirdly, he's saying that regarding right behavior, Christians almost always live in the tension of equally universal, equally powerful truths. We live in the radical middle of the tension of two truths. Now, in chapter one, we saw John launched with the right belief about Jesus, combating the early heresy on those churches that he pastored, that Jesus is real. He, he's the real deal. He's God's son in the flesh. And then he started detailing what it meant for Christians to walk in the, in the light. That is to have right behavior. And he offered two conditions that we need to have right beliefs about God, that God is good always, all the time, in every way. And then secondly, we need to have the right beliefs about sin. Uh, he said, uh, on one end of the tension, we've illustrated it with the spring. On one end of the tension, we, we are sons and daughters of the living God. Uh, we are already victorious. We're living in the presence of the future, in the light of the, of the age to come. We are a new man or a new woman, reborn in the image of God. Uh, we, we, uh, are redeemed from sin and we are victorious. 
But then John also says, at the same time, we're sons and daughters who still suffer the effects of this present evil age. We are weak. We are not yet totally Christ-like. And we are vulnerable to sin, the flesh, and the devil. And we live in the radical middle of those two equally universal, powerful truths. Such is life. Now in chapter 2, John is going to layer yet another condition of right behavior onto uh, his presupposition of what it means to walk in the light. So if you have your Bible, your Bible app, open to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading uh, at verses 3 to 6. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commands. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person's a liar. It's not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That's how we know that we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Now, it's interesting that John prefaces the condition of the third condition of right behavior here with that expression, and we can be sure that we know him. Now, why would he start the paragraph there? Because he's just got done describing how sincere, spirit-filled Christians can still sin. And as a result, don't we many times begin to wonder, where did that come from? Why am I still susceptible to that and vulnerable to that? And then we think, well, am I even really a Christian? Is there any proof that I really know him? And John says, yes, you can be sure that you know him. Proof that we're citizens of God's kingdom, proof that we have eternal life, proof that we're walking in the light, proof that the, the real life of the age to come has actually broken back into our life today is what we see in verse 3, that we obey his commandments. Now, what commandments? Well, the original audience would have likely understood John to have been referring to the Ten Commands sometimes called the law or the covenant. And immediately, many of our minds hearken back to the image of Charlton Heston in the movie The Ten Commandments. Still others of you probably remember an antique sign with old-style lettering that hangs at the front of the old church you used to attend that served as a dire warning for any of you who are considering sinning. The Ten Commandments haunted you. But we might now be wondering, why would John start uh, by referring to the commands and our duty to keep them. Didn't he just tell us in chapter 1 that we're forgiven? And, and isn't one of the themes of his letters and all the letters in the New Testament that we're now actually free from the law? Yes and no. We can't get away from that tension. The commandments were a kind of advanced signpost, as it were, painting a picture of what a genuinely fruitful human life in God's kingdom would look like, what a citizen of the new kingdom looked like. But the commandments actually became a terror to the Old Testament people because they realized that they couldn't and they didn't keep them, and no one can on their own. You tried lately? In fact, the very purpose of the commands, at least one of them, was to, to point people to their desperate need of a Savior that left on our own devices and own strength, we cannot keep the law. They pointed to Jesus, and then Jesus came 
And he said, as the fulfillment of the commands, the real life of the future age invaded the present in the very real, literal person of Jesus Christ. He actually totally, completely obeyed all the commands as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in Jesus, we discover the reality to which the signposts pointed. Now, for Jesus, all the commands were summed up in one word, love. The currency of the age to come is love. The currency of real life is love. All the other commands, the details of what to do, what to think, what to say, or what not to do, what not to think, or what not to say, are summed up in love. Maybe you could think about it with me this way. For those of you who have ever been in love or are still in love, love doesn't need a detailed list to guide its behavior, does it? Now, I admit a few of us might find uh, some degree of appreciable benefit in a short list. We need a little help. And if you need it, I can give you one, you know, guys. Uh, uh, <laughs> but love doesn't need a detailed list uh, uh, to guide its behavior. You see, there's no printed list of a division of labor in the hair household. You know, Ben does this and Tina does that. And then when we comply and do our list, it proves our love for one another. No, love motivates us to please and to care for and provide and protect and sacrifice and defer to the object of the beloved. doesn't need a list. Uh, real love eliminates the necessity of the list or the law or the commands. Real love. And Jesus said over and over that everything in the book, that is the Old Testament, can really be summed up in these two commands, love God and love one another. And we see Jesus expressing a passionate love for God and God's inexhaustible, never-ending love for all people everywhere. That's what Jesus did. Love, that was it. And so if we see anything about Jesus, is that he modeled living this command. It's why in verse 6, he says, those who say they live in God should live as Jesus did. Loving others. Followers of Jesus are to love like he loved. This is what John is appealing to. And then John explains in a little more detail in verses 7 to 8, this uh, thoughts on this same uh, vein. Dear friends, dear children, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one you've had from the very beginning. The old commandment to love one another is the same message you've heard before. Yet, it's also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, And you're also living it, for darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already shining. So what is it? Is it old, or is it new? Yes. (laughs) Now remember, I'm encouraging you to understand the dualistic language of John, old, new, light, dark, truth, lie, sin, don't sin, as the language of tension. Love is both old and a new command. Now, it's an old command in the sense that if Moses and the Israelites to whom the Ten Commandments were originally given could actually have seen and heard Jesus talk about love, they would have said, that's it. That's what those ten things are talking about. 
all the commands did was give a concrete expression to what loving God and loving others actually looked like. It's what life in God's kingdom was to have looked like. Those of you who have studied the Ten Commands know there are two tables. The first table commands are the first four have to do with loving God. You'll have no other gods before me, no idols, don't misuse his name, and honor the Sabbath. The second table commands, the last six, have to do with loving others. Honor your parents, uh, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, uh, don't testify against your neighbor falsely, and don't covet. So citizens of God's, pe- uh, of God's kingdom, God's people, were to live that way. And if they had seen clearly, they would say, well, that's what love looks like. So it's an old command. They had it from the beginning. But Jesus said, it's also a new command in the sense that Jesus revealed love in a newer, richer dimension as a human being filled with the Holy Spirit, giving us a glimpse of what life is like. Jesus was God in human form. That's what John has been saying. He's like you and me. He suffered the limitations of humanity, and yet he fully loved. He was a man filled with the Holy Spirit and could fully love others. So John is saying he is the model for what our new life in God's kingdom is supposed to look like. You and I, filled with the Holy Spirit, can fully love others. John strengthens his argument right there in verse 8 by saying Jesus lived the truth of this command. His entire ministry summed up one word, love. And then John specifically illustrates what it means to love in verses 9 to 11. If anyone claims, I'm living in the light, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves another brother or sister is living in the light and doesn't cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates another brother or sister is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. Now, many of us would probably agree that at one level, it's relatively easy to talk about loving God. You know, we read the Bible, uh, we listen to either hymns or contemporary worship choruses on our playlists. Uh, we have Christian art on our walls and, and uh, you know, we clean up our language. We donate a little money and feel good about that. And then we worship at a worship service, a Sunday morning or small group when it's convenient. But then when you talk about loving people, I mean, that's when it gets challenging, doesn't it? I mean, Christianity would be awesome if we didn't have to deal with people. (laughs) But frankly, there are irritating habits to overlook. There are opinions to tolerate. There are quirks to ignore. There are offenses to let go of. There are hurts to forgive. There are debts to release. There are prejudices to repent of. This is love. This is the real work. Of the kingdom. John is saying the old way of darkness, that's easy because we know that's just naturally that we collapse into selfish individualism, suspicion and judgment of other people who don't look or smell or, or dress the way we do, uh, or, or, or are from a different culture. It's easy to slip into, uh, unforgiveness and even hatred to heck with people. People are pigs. I mean, that's, John didn't say that. I said that, but that's what he was saying. 
The old way of darkness is easy. The new way of light is hard. It's challenging. But he's saying, when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, the light of God that already lives in you, when we cooperate with him and we really love others, then we prove our kingdom citizenship. We prove that we're actually experiencing real life, that we're in the kingdom. We belong to Jesus. Our behavior proves that we are his children. Then John fleshes out his illustration when he breaks out into a repetitive praise chorus himself in verses 12 to 14. It's a sing-song repetitive formula in the original language. He talks about God's children and those who are mature and those who are young in the faith. And then he says it again, those who are God's children and those who are mature and those who are young in the faith. And uh, I think it's perhaps best not to try to, like, analyze in strict terms why does he say this to the young children first and then he say that to the young children later? It's, it's a song. It's a, it's a repetitive praise course. He's standing back looking at that, the object of, uh, and evidence of God working in people's lives and he's, he's like thanking God for it. So he's just illustrating here in, in this sing song repetitive formula the, the multitude of ways that God works in all of our lives, no matter where we're at on the journey, whether we're just beginning as a young child, a, a, a person who's young and growing in the Lord, or someone who's mature. No matter where you're at on the journey, God works in powerful ways, and we should praise him for it. But there is a recurring theme, and it's that love represents victory over the devil. And I think it's illustrative that real love uh, it, it, it is a war. It, it, it's a, a well-fought battle. Love's not a country line dance at a wedding reception or a waltz in a, in a ballroom dance class. It's the fruit of a well-fought battle. Real love is. But since Jesus is real, since God is good, since we can win the battle to love, he's saying we can celebrate. And when you win, your behavior proves your kingdom citizenship. We see that it's not just what you say, it's what you do. Belief and behavior are both necessary. Then John expands his treatment in verses 15 to 17 with a warning about what not to love. Don't love this world or the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you don't have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. And these are not from the Father, but from the world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. That anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So we're not to love the world or the things that it offers. Now, what does that mean? Well, generations of Western Christians have supposed that we're, we're, what it meant to renounce the world was that we were to do that in every and, 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 and literal sense, any and every sense, natural enjoyments, anything fun or pleasurable like food or drink or dancing or sex or sports or art or music or television or jewelry or movies, even the created order itself. I grew up in a religious tradition that prided itself on not being worldly. Which seems a little ironic, given the warning in the text against pride in our achievements. 
<laughs> but in this sense, religion has often thought of the world as the literal world of time and space and matter. And this line of thinking quickly collapses into dualism, that God is good, matter is evil, the heresy that John's trying to combat. I think that John was just appealing for us not to love the world system. The word he uses in the Greek is cosmos, and it, 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 it's referring more than just the material world of time and space and matter, the spirit behind the world system. So think of the world simply as any combination of things that draw us away from God. You see, everybody worships. Worship is not the exclusive prerogative of Christians. You know that, right? Every person in the world worships. The problem is that as part of a fallen, dark world, we worship the wrong things. Now, in our Western world culture, world system, the gods that we worship are just not as obvious as the gods of wood and stone in other cultures or the ancestors uh, who, whose ashes sit in an urn on our mantle. Rather, they are the gods of beauty and fitness, recreation and leisure, freedom from all pain, unrestrained pleasure through food or alcohol or shopping or non-marital sex or porn. Status and accomplishment through education or materialism and greed. What other translations would refer in these three verses as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, or the craving for whatever the body feels, the craving for whatever the eyes see, or the arrogant pride in one's possessions. We could say it this way, physical gratification, greed, and extravagant lifestyles. What captures your true love, your worship, John is asking. Where do you derive your identity, your security, and your significance? John is saying, if we walk in the light, if we find our identity and security and significance in Jesus then we'll not be phased by what the world offers, what the world system offers. If we are secure in Jesus, if we're drawing real life from Jesus, fulfilling our destiny uh, for life as we step into his script for uh, our part in God's great story, if, if that's where we're truly at, then we can enjoy God and his goodness through his creation, the, the material world of time, space, and matter, without being sucked away and drawn away into it. And at that moment, we can richly enjoy all things that God gives, because the Bible does declare the truth that he gives us richly all things to enjoy. To the degree that the world or the things that it offers, physical gratification, greed, extravagant lifestyles own us, then we are not truly free, nor are we free to truly love others. So John is saying, live free. Don't love that. 
Then writing with the wisdom of an aged man who's watched his friends and parishioners fall to these three temptations, John urges us to remember in verse 17 that the world is fading away, and in verse 18 that the last hour is here. Now, maybe this summer you've got a a family vacation ahead of you or a family reunion, a camping party, you know, a wedding that you've planned. You know, you can hardly wait. You're anticipating that event. You plan, you organize, you prepare, you you budget, you make arrangements, you make the travel, you read brochures, you review the details, you uh, lay awake at night in bed thinking and dreaming about it. You're filled with anticipation, aren't you? You can identify with that with that feeling. Now, Jesus had promised John and the disciples that he was coming back. And as John is a very old man, he surely thought it has to be soon. He was filled with anticipation. And John wanted his audience to not allow their pursuit of pleasure, the world system, to dull their sense of anticipation of Jesus's return. Now, the language of verses 18 to 27, which we won't read the whole text, seemed to imply that John's readers had been taught to expect an antichrist in connection with the closing days of the Christian era right before Jesus returned. Perhaps they'd read the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica in the fourth chapter uh, and and in the second letter in the second chapter. Letters that would have been written 33 to 38 years earlier where he specifically warned about a rebellion against God and the revelation of a man of sin that would both happen before the coming of the Lord. And friends, ever since then, lots of well-meaning Christians have speculated about the Antichrist and the beast of Revelation 13. Elaborate timelines have been constructed of of the end of the age, and lots of names and lots of institutions have been identified as the Antichrist. Christians have spent a great deal of time and energy presupposing who this person or institution really is. But John turns a lot of these popular notions right on their head when he applies the word Antichrist to the whole group of Gnostic teachers. They were teaching falsehood. People that had actually left his church. Verse 18 and 19, Dear children, the last hour is here. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us, and when they left, it proved they really didn't belong with us. Now, you neither need to be a scholar nor a prophet to conclude that if John thought that the biblical warnings about such a person, the Antichrist, were already fulfilled, and that they were living in the last hour, then we are 2,000 years closer to the last hour than when John wrote, which means we're closer, right? Okay, we don't need to prognosticate anything else. We will see no appreciable benefit to try to figure out who the Antichrist is other than what John's already warned us about. And he's saying, think about it like this. Any person or teacher or institution that that draws you away from God because of the values, the priorities, or lifestyle that they teach, that's the spirit of Antichrist. And John says, it's here. 
And the fact that it's here means that the end of the world is almost ready to come. The spirit of the Antichrist is anything that draws us away from Jesus and citizenship in his kingdom. Anything that leads us from love to hate, from light to darkness, from truth to lies, from freedom to slavery, from Jesus is God in the flesh and is the way to to salvation, to all roads lead to God and it doesn't really matter how you get there. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And John's appeal is to be on guard about that. Now, in verses 26 and 27, at the end of this subparagraph, John says this, I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you've had, you've, re, you've received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true for the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as he's taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. Now, John's appeal here is, is not to reinforce a mistaken notion that we no longer need the benefit of pastors and teachers in the church because I don't need any man to teach me. And that's a spirit that's out there that John was combating 2,000 years ago. John is saying almost like this, shame on you. You should have already known that that teaching was false because you have the Holy Spirit, the teacher, living in you. And so in this sense, it's an encouragement by John to live again in the radical middle of tension. The tension between pastors and teachers who care for your soul and offer instruction on one end, and the other hand, the indwelling Holy Spirit who leads and guides you into all truth. We live in the radical tension of the middle of those two things. And you know, maybe you're living at one end of those uh, uh, of that spectrum. People say, like, you know, forget the Holy Spirit and all this stuff. We've got pastors and teachers, the historic, the time-tested, doctrinally revealed truth of the church. It's always been this way. And then other people are like, hey, man, forget, man. I don't need, I don't need the church. I don't need teachers. I don't need pastors. I don't need doctrine. I have the Holy Spirit. You, you, you all are laughing because you know people, or maybe yourself, you're living at one of those two ends. And John says, no, you gotta live in the radical middle. Shame on you people, you have the Holy Spirit, but you need teachers. He was one. We need both. Now we'll finish with this. It's like now to bring his contemplative reflections full circle back to verse three, where he started this argument. John says this in 28 and 29. And now, dear children, Remain in fellowship, koinonia, with Christ, so that when he returns, you'll be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what's right are God's children. Remain in fellowship, koinonia, by believing and behaving. That's what he's telling us in the ways that I've just described. And then he says the basis of his appeal is Jesus' return. The word in the original language in the Greek is parousia. And it means literally an appearance to make visible. It's not technically a coming as if in he is presently far away and then comes near. You see, John is telling us he's already very near. The power of the age to come is already broken in. The veil between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of uh, of this earth is very thin. 
The present evil age and the age to come are already here, overlapping. And so we could say it this way. Heaven is already here among us. The return of Jesus is simply his being made visible. And John tells us in the book of Revelation, when that happens, everything changes because it's all remade. The earth and the heavens are all remade. But John goes on to note that his appearing will be the cause of shame in some. Some won't be ready. And John is encouraging uh, us as the readers, the followers of Christ, that we won't shrink back. But rather, when Jesus is made visible, that we will be full of courage. We might say confidence. And the way that you can be confident when the Lord comes is to always be doing what's right. Have right belief, have right behavior. All of us can remember a time when we were kids, when our parents suddenly appeared, like out of nowhere. Oh, crap. You know, or whatever. And you got caught doing something that you were ashamed about because it was either immoral, illegal, unethical, or against your house rules. You remember it well. I remember where I was playing with matches when my mom caught me. And John is saying, you know, since you don't know when Jesus is going to suddenly appear, then the way to avoid shame and embarrassment at his appearing is to always be doing what's right by walking in the light. That's good advice. Let's take that to the bank. Now, friends, what's your proof of kingdom citizenship? Is it a passport? Is it by saying you believe or you're in? Or is it the life of love for God and for others that's lived by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. I'm trusting that Jesus will empower us to be the kind of people who actually believe and behave in a way that reflects the real life of his kingdom and gives proof that we're citizens that belong to him. Lord, we're just so grateful that you gave us your word. It's an encouragement and and a challenge both. And I pray that the seed of your word would fall on the fertile soil today and that you that you'd cause us to grow to be the kind of people that that we're reading about and that you desire us to be, that those of us who say we live in Jesus would actually live the way you live. We pray now, Lord, as we return our gifts to you, the gifts of hard work and effort and lifting of our hearts and hands in song and the sharing of communion today would all just be tokens that we love you and we want to be your kids full on. Make our lives count for you. In your name we pray. Amen.